0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pears Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. 1806, the Balancing Columbian Repository, a stimulating liquor composed of... You get the gist, listener. And I'm fairly certain that if you're joining us for episode 100 today, you're very familiar with all of the above. It is, of course, the first recorded definition that we know of, at least, of the cocktail. It's always struck me as serendipitous that so many of the drinks we class as cocktails continue to adhere to this formula. And it never ceases to amaze me how such a rigid, almost restrictive definition can apply to two drinks that otherwise appear to have nothing in common. Take the old-fashioned and the Pisco Sour, each takes all of the boxes of the 1806 definition, but their preparations, serve, and glassware are poles apart. Like I said, Lister, that never ceases to amaze me. But I have often wondered, how true is that definition for modern-day drinks? In 2023, if we were to redefine the cocktail, what additions would we make? Because surely, in the 217 years since its publishing, something has to have changed. Or maybe not. I don't have the answers to those questions, but we are joined today by a man who's as qualified as any to speak on this topic. He doesn't just collect vintage cocktail books, he owns the rights to many, and has not only made a career out of republishing and selling them, but in doing so, shaped the very path of cocktail culture since the early days of the Renaissance. All of this takes place through his company, which just happens to do exactly the same for vintage barware and glassware. Can you tell who it is yet, listener? It's Greg Bone, CEO of Cocktail Kingdom and Cocktail Kingdom Hospitality Group. And he's ready to write a new chapter in history with us today on the Cocktail College Podcast. It is The Hundred, episode number 100... And we're joined today in the virtual studio by none other than Greg Bohm. Greg, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, little bit of a special occasion right here on Cocktail College.
1: Yeah, happy to be here for your 100th episode. That's pretty amazing.
0: And we're really excited to have you on and especially to dig into today's topic because I feel like, you know, and as we're going to get into your areas of expertise and the work that you've done up to this point within the, the cocktail landscape, is very broad-reaching, and it touches many different aspects. But the first of which, and as I believe it, your first involvement kind of on a semi-professional or interest level with cocktails is through literature.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about that? My family business um, was book publishing, and my uh, the company Sterling Publishing published a book by Salvatore Calabrese, the legendary bartender uh, from England. And his book ended up selling millions of copies. And I got into cocktails from that. And then I started collecting antique cocktail books as well as my outlet for my interest in cocktails. Because back then, I didn't know of any cocktail bars in New York. So I just kind of just was doing it on my own at home. The Angel Share actually existed, but I didn't know it. And so I started collecting cocktail books. And then I owned a book publishing company, not my family business. I'd gone out on my own at that point. And I started republishing some of the most important cocktail books from my collection. So it was um, the first thing I did in the cocktail world definitely was yeah, republishing some of the most important and rarest anti cocktail books in true facsimile reproductions. That's wild. And, uh, that was before Cocktail Kingdom existed. And then I ended up starting Cocktail Kingdom, the barware company. And now all those books are uh, published and sold through Cocktail Kingdom.
0: And probably. that was, correct me if I'm wrong, That the, the years around 98, or is that the year that the, yeah. the Calabresi book comes out or you start your publishing company?
1: No, 98, uh, the Calabresi book, and then I started the publishing a couple years after that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's really funny because if you want to put kind of, if you want to create a timeline of the cocktail renaissance, as we call it, right? And if you want to chart important moments and dates and years in that. And we're talking recent memory here, but, you know, we're going to get into much much older history very shortly. But if you want to note down some dates, you know, I think a big one, especially here in New York, would be uh, New Year's Eve, 1999, 2000, Milk and Honey reopens. And then I think, you know, you could look at this one way and say, well, that's a great coincidence that at that point, Greg starts to republish some of these, you know, highly influential historic cocktail books or is it a case of chicken and egg situation that really helps cocktail culture grow and expand? And, you know, my experience here on this show has been that a lot of those books that, you know, you've been involved with are the references that all of the bartenders from that era were turning to
1: and adapting and, and, and really looking to for inspiration. Yeah. I mean, one of the main reasons I started republishing those books was because cocktail bartenders then did not have proper role models. So whether I was talking to Sasha Petrosky or other people, they had a lot of inspiration, but there weren't modern role models. It was the time when bartending was what you did to pay some bills, you know, on your summer break, but it wasn't widely considered a career opportunity. And when I was reading both Jerry Thomas um, and the Harry Johnson book, uh, the, we did the facsimile Reproduction from his 1900 book. It was a very respected profession. And a lot of why I was doing this was to create role models, or actually, I guess, more to make people aware of role models that had long since passed, but they were there. Uh, I think the books are used very differently now because you're into you know people they are growing up and they have ro- actual role models as bartenders. But the original idea was to lay the groundwork. So the Harry Johnson book, for example, had a lot on how to run a bar. It wasn't just cocktail recipes. I wasn't trying to publish the books with the best cocktail recipes. I was publishing books which were rare, historic, visually appealing, but also had content that included how to run a bar.
0: And I think that's super fascinating as well. I can't imagine another field in which you would be able to turn to history to therefore set an example for an industry in modern day, right? Like, how can you look to the past? You know, with technology these days, right? You know, everything has become computerized. The nature of work has changed. And yet here you are turning to the past and being like, here's mentors for you to do this the proper way. An art that was lost over decades and basically a century with prohibition.
1: Yeah. And prohibition is the key word there because my early studies brought me to Tokyo. So I was, you know, meeting with Kazuo Ueda, um, famous for his hard shake. And in Japan, there were absolutely role models, but in the US and in much of Europe and Canada, there weren't really. So it's very interesting seeing that that a a place which didn't have prohibition and places which either had prohibition or were affected in one way or another by prohibition Mm -hmm. and the differences that that created and therefore you lost your role models and... But they they were had historically they existed,
0: <laughs> and you know I think that's a great point there because you mentioned you know Japan or Europe. We spoke about Salvatore Calabrese earlier, who would have been I'm I'm guessing in London by that point, and yes. you know doing okay, so doing great Lanesboro things. Lanesboro,
1: he was at the Lanesboro Hotel. Oh, uh, the time. Lanesboro. Okay, the Library Bar.
0: And so from there, then you know you're talking of it here in the U.S., the home of the cocktail, and I don't want to get into like who first invented the cocktail as a drink because i think it's one of those things that probably evolves over time but i do want to get into the first i'm going to say official definition as we know it in print of what that cocktail is and it's come up a ton in this show before but i'd love to hear it you know through your telling please greg
1: yeah, so I mean the first definition of the cocktail in 1806 out of a, a newspaper from Hudson, New York was first mentioned in 1803 but not defined and just the you know the simple definition of a spirit with bitters and a modifier essentially. Uh it it's interesting that that definition has really stood the test of time in many ways. I think we'll probably get into ways it hasn't, but in a long way um the original definition that we know of, the oldest definition, we should I should say, not the original perhaps, but the mm-hmm. oldest definition that we found in print is from 18, 1806 and is, is very straightforward uh, as cocktail as a category, not as all alcoholic beverages, just as one specific type of alcoholic beverage.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I my understand maybe is that before that you had the sling, which is essentially that same category of drinks, but without the bitters, so the bitters really in a way kind of comes to define this way of approaching drinks, maybe it, kind of primitive at the beginning
1: bitter, yeah, bittered sling essentially,
0: it's a bittered sling, okay, yeah, and we were chatting about this beforehand off air, but you know there there are much earlier roots to the to the etymology, the word cocktail, and they're out there. Uh, I think we're probably of the same opinion that that's kind of a less interesting or important pursuit in finding that out because,
1: eh, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of... I've never found that I've come much closer to what the origin of the word cocktail is the more I dive into it, whether it's, you know, ho- horse related or, I mean, there's a lot of, most of the stories have been disproven, <laughs> but none of <laughs> them certainly have been proven. Mm-hmm. And yeah,
0: I mean, I, I'm just going to say it's probably not something we want to get into here, but people can go out there and Google it. Uh, there is a, you know, caulking the tail and perhaps doing something to a horse that might make it do that. You know, like that's that's where, you know, supposedly using something that might provide energy, that's supposedly the origin. People can delve into that a little bit more. I hope I haven't gone too far into the old, <laughs> slightly no, vulgar realm. but I think realm. that
1: will get be important as we chat about, that it was thought of as something that you imbibed in the morning and that it was I mean that other than some of the stories that have truly been disproven, the ones that the lore that's still out there often go back to it's something to wake you up, to get you going, to start your morning, start your day, make you feel better.
0: A stimulating liquor, I think is the, yes, is, exactly. is the the definition there. Also I just gotta say, you know, the balance comma and Colombian repository just the the weird punctuation there as a writer <laughs> whenever i see that i just cannot get my head around it and to this day i'm i know it's a local newspaper but any do you have any insight on where the title of that publication comes from because it's it's not drinks related in any way right it's just a hudson newspaper
1: Oh it's just a local newspaper that covered a lot of things and the actual definition which was cocktail is a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind sugar water and bitters was a reaction to a question what is this thing uh, you call a cocktail. So it was actually, it's not super in depth. It's more, it's a rea- it's an answer to a question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yeah, they would cover a lot of different subjects as well. But yeah, it was just somebody saying that it, it was, it's interesting because I mean, in eighteen o three, the cocktails mentioned in a Vermont newspaper and then 1806 were in New York, uh, Northern New York towards Vermont. Uh, actually not that far from Vermont at all, really. Um, so kind of the Northeast of the United States is covering, it it certainly seems like that was known then, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how long the definition stayed that simple. I mean, it certainly started changing. Um, things didn't change as quickly back then, but I mean, obviously by the time you get to 1862, which is when Jerry Thomas published his first book, one of the first books I did a reproduction of, he was already doubting the, the definition a little
0: Mm bit. You know, interesting that it would be in that northeastern area of the United States, still probably heavy British influence at the time. And again, that probably does point to this word being used as some kind of, of, some kind of slang that's come across the pond over then. Uh, and that 18, you know, the, the original letter there proving that it's become somewhat part of the vernacular. People are hearing this word being spoken and then we have that definition. So I do find that very interesting.
1: And that definition did become very similar to the dictionary definition. which As we go through, we could talk a little bit of the timelines. I mean, it was kind of, you know, Webster's dictionary definition of a cocktail didn't vary much from that for a while.
0: And and any word on when that would have first been printed? I don't have that
1: off the top of my head. But yeah, the first time it appears in the dictionary, I don't remember off the top of my head.
0: But they they chose to go with that. And I think one of the crucial things here, maybe common misconception, is that the old-fashioned is the original cocktail, the old fashioned certainly fits very well into that definition. It's probably the drink that most naturally fits into that definition. If you know something about recipes, right? In classics, like others do conform to it. But that original being spirit of any, I really should have this written in front of me for this episode, to be honest with you. But
1: you know, it's, it's a cocktail um, is a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind, sugar, water and bitters.
0: Spirits of any kind. So yeah. At that time, what are we talking about here? Are we talking Jennifer? Are we talking probably whiskey, maybe brandy? What are we... I mean,
1: Yeah, definitely whiskey, brandy. Um, well, 1806, yeah. Whiskey, brandy. I mean, there'd be some access to rum, but I mean, definitely whiskey would have been the main one. But it's it's more modern now. I mean, even through when Cuba was the epicenter of cocktails, much later than this, you would see that they would make you know, the mojito in all the books, oh, do you want a rum mojito, a whiskey mojito? It's very common. It's actually interesting because I would make fun of things like in the old days, you know, when I first, before I knew much about cocktails and people would want a different base spirit in their drink, you would think, oh, that was kind of silly, but actually that's, it was flexible back then. Like different, I mean, a, a rum old fashioned, you know, is a palmetto or you know different things have different names mm-hmm. but essentially that is how cocktails work you pick your base spirit and your bitters and <laughs> a modifier and you're off to the races
0: I mean it's all about ratios isn't it and and I love to get your take on this here so you know as that kind of portrays it you could talk about like what we think of the cocktail as a as a whole category of drinks Maybe actually the cocktail is just one family within a greater category and a mojito can be one, right? Or it slings or things And talking about, you know. Yeah. Later on, you start to talk about families like the daisy, the sour. How much importance do you place in kind of categorizing those things? Do you think it's restrictive or do you think it's helpful?
1: I mean, I think it's helpful and it bothers me when things lose their definition because at some point, you want to have some sense of what you're going to get. I mean, for me, the word from a culinary where taking confit and then you know cooked in its own fat, and then you know confit of tomato. I'm like, really? Because you're not telling me anything there. I doubt it's cooked in its own fat. You know, uh, I think by using things properly, it does give you a hint of what you might be about to in that case eat and what we're talking about, what you're about to drink. I do like the idea that cocktails historically were something you used in the morning to wake up. So you have the Corpse Reviver. The first Corpse Reviver appears in a book in 1871, um, actually out of the UK, where the drinks are noticed as a, they're noted as American drinks. So it's in a UK book, but it's noted as an American drink. The Corpse Reviver that's um, in the Gentleman's Table Companion. And, you know, you have the eye opener, all these things to get you going in the morning or for health reasons, restorative. And I love that definition of a cocktail. I think that served its purpose for many years. And then you get into interesting things. So the word cocktail now is meaning something to get you going in the morning. You then get into the oyster cocktail or shrimp cocktail, which people still know today. That was something you had in the morning. It doesn't, it's missing the stimulating liquor. It doesn't have that. But you would take two oysters I'm taking a, a definition from like Hoffman House or Two oysters and salt, pepper, Tabasco or um, Worcestershire would be mentioned. And then you shoot it in the morning, you know, nice and warm, right? It's been sitting there overnight <laughs> on your bedstand to get you going in the morning. Therefore, it fit that definition of a cocktail because cocktails were in the morning. That's what you were drinking in 18. I'm going to call up to the 1840s, 1850s, Mm -hmm. I would take it. So I do like the depth. It has a meaning. So if somebody called, it's a little weird for me. It's an oyster cocktail, but to people of the day, that day, it had a meaning. And you knew that was something somebody was having in the morning. Um, Already by 1862, Jerry Thomas was a little like, I don't know about the whole morning thing (laughs) Um, because he's a 1862, which is widely considered the first cocktail book ever published. Uh, The Bon Vivant Companion by Jerry Thomas, um, he said the cocktail is a modern invention and is generally used on fishing and other sporting parties. Although some patients, patients in italics, some patients insist it is good in the morning as a tonic, but he's already (laughs) poo-pooing that.
0: That's super interesting then as well. Probably, you know, hinting toward the fact that these are these are strong concoctions and that maybe people have gotten a little bit too much of a taste for them and that, you know, that excuse of giving you that kind of perk in the morning does become just that, an excuse. Um, You're a patient. You need it <laughs> for health reasons. <laughs> Is there any indication um, from Jerry Thomas whether... Because a lot of the recipes in that book, I would imagine, do conform to this definition um, or do conform to the kind of parameters laid out there.
1: Yeah, he does. I mean, their cocktail is fits this definition for sure. They're all. are not many cocktails in the book. But yes, they all are going to have bitters, um, often Boker's bitters or something. He has uh, even batched ones, but it all conforms to this. For, so definitely then cocktail was that. I mean... Other things were, you know, you could have a mist, which would be overcrush, a spirit over crushed ice. So, I mean, going back to your question a little bit, I like that definition. I mean, I'm sad a mist isn't available anymore. You know, I want a mist. I would like a, you could have a creme de menthe mist or you could have a whiskey mist. It's just uh, whatever it is, over crushed ice. And as things lose their, I don't mind the definition changing. Language itself changes. Mm -hmm. Lots of cocktails change over time which is great. I mean, Kazuo Ueda, oh, in his book Cocktail Techniques talks about there's four recipes for every cocktail. The original way was written, the modern currently accepted version, the bartender's favorite version, and the customer's favorite version. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, I think it's great. But I do like the definitions. I I accept that definitions change over time. That I'm okay with. But I do like that People, don't. I mean, in a, in modern times, I mean, you saw the way the martini. I mean, depending on the people listening, their age, they may or may not remember when martini started becoming almost synonymous with cocktail, and anything could be called a martini, including desserts and things like that. Essentially, it's a,
0: it, it becomes anything served in that glassware becomes a martini. Exactly,
1: anything served in a conical. <laughs> glass it's a martini
0: <laughs> and so it's super interesting then as well like i'm I'm going with what we would modern nowadays consider the cocktail right you know mixed drinks prepared in a um you know in a in a purposeful manner which of the original aspects of the definition do you think most often gets omitted is that bitters is that bitters ironically given the thing that that is kind of what comes to really identify or separate the the cocktail from slings there?
1: Probably bitters, yeah that would make sense because I mean water is dilution, right? it's not necessarily water as water's sake I think a cocktail absolutely needs spirits I mean if it's something as wine based or beer based I would argue that it doesn't fit even the modern definition of a cocktail yeah, I think bitters are probably what's gone by the wayside Um, I'd also make the argument that one of the reasons the, co- the word cocktail has stood the test of time is because some drinks in that category, the old fashioned cocktail, the Manhattan, I think are so amazing and so delicious that they've stood the test of time and carried the word cocktail with them.
0: That's a really great point, and, and really kind of feeds in in a way to what you were saying earlier there about being four different versions of you know any drink yeah. having four different versions of it, because things evolve and things do change, and definitions change like you say. but if you have those standard bearers there to kind of uphold the category, and they're also different enough that they can't become homogenized into one right even though you know the manhattan and the martini you can argue there's a lot of similarities there um yeah. but because of drinks like that yeah you you know you're shepherded through some pretty dark times for for mixed drinks in the american drinking public
1: yeah i think that's well said i think it's really well said that yes they were there you have those shining beacons that will guide you through because they're just i, I one of the the first cocktail book I ever compiled, I wouldn't say I wrote it, I compiled, I think it was 1100 recipes I published for Borders Bookstore, I can't imagine, 20 years ago, 18 years ago, something soon. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tasted hundreds and hundreds of cocktails. And at the end of the day, my favorites were the Manhattan, the Margarita. (laughs) You know, At the end, when I was done tasting all these cocktails, and I actually wanted a cocktail, it was the classic cocktails that i reached for
0: they're the classics for a reason and i think also you know in this era that we're in too like the modern classics that exist as well, and I I do believe that to be kind of like a, a real category. Now there are some that you can argue maybe they don't get enough recognition, or others maybe they don't fall into that because they're not really that well known. I don't know, but yeah, there is the, the those standard bearers again of this of this new golden era, whatever you want to call it, renaissance of what? drinks that will maintain
1: right will eighty yeah, percent of them come from Dick Bradsell, but yeah, there's a bunch of modern <laughs> classics.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, Sam Ross has 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 had a hand in a couple as well, I believe. There
1: definitely Sam as well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but I want to I want to do a little a little thought experiment with you here today and approach this because I'm happy that you said you're you're open minded to the fact that the definition can evolve. I want to get your thoughts as, as someone who's been in this business for over 20 years now, owns multiple bars, I'm sure, gets to go to the best bars around the world. I want to hear your take on a 2023 definition of the cocktail and whether there's anything that needs to be added to what we have there or omitted or whether we kind of tear that up and start again. I'm guessing not because
1: you did say you like it, but keen to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I think... It's interesting. I mean, I'll share my thoughts. And then I think I'm going to go back to David Embry and go back to, you know, it's rather we go from 1806 to 1862. I might stop in 1948. And then, <laughs> uh, but I think in terms of just immediate, immediately answering your question, as long as it is uh, distilled alcohol forward, so, you know, it's it's spirit-based and involves ceremony. I think that's one thing that it involves ceremony in terms of, the, I'm trying to think, it's like, to me, uh, a vodka soda is not a cocktail. Um, it could, I guess you could do it in a ceremonial way, but in the traditional way, it's not fitting the definition. But I wouldn't change the definition a lot. I do think that it's spirit-based and then using a modifier, but I think what makes it different is something out of a can, like an RTD, um, you know, ready to drink, or Things like that aren't cocktails to me because part of the definition that I would add to it is something either presented, whether it's made at home or at a bar, done in somewhat of a ceremonial fashion. I think during the pandemic, people started preaching at this as well and realizing um, having the ceremony around a drink makes it more interesting, makes it better. Some things that I'm curious that to me, are outliers that don't fit the definition. During the More towards the beginning of the cocktail renaissance, mostly out of Washington, D.C., there were a bunch of culinary-focused drinks. And in my mind, if it's gazpacho with vodka in it, that's gazpacho with vodka. That's never going to be a cocktail to me. Totally. So it can go awry. But I I think the definition's pretty good. But the one of the main things that makes a cocktail a cocktail in modern context is how it's presented, the glassware, the shaking, the stirring um, of the drink. And how it's presented, because I think in the modern world it evokes a certain romantic a romanticism that if it's just booze in a glass or not spirit focused, then it wouldn't fit my definition.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. I I really love that idea of bringing preparation and serving into it as well. I might say you know prepared with purpose, served with ceremony. Yes. Yeah, and I like the idea of grouping modifiers too, because I think you know. I do think there really is a place, especially with talk of like sustainability, like I don't want to maybe tie someone down to always using fresh ingredients or tying Mm. someone down to having a sweetener or bitters too, because I think there's, there's other ways these days that we can find balance, but a spirit modifier. Yeah. I love that. I love that idea. Yeah. Uh, So David
1: Embury wrote the fine art of mixing drinks, which I actually purchased the copyright uh, from his daughter before she passed away. Um, so myself and Cocktail Kingdom owned the copyright to the book Fine Art of Mixing Drinks. To me, his recipes are kind of on the very dry side, but it's one of the best books ever written, on um, cocktail making theory. He wrote it in 1946 and 1947. Yes, I'm not giving you the wrong year. It was published in 1948. I know that, but I have his handwritten notes. <laughs> and they start in 46. Um So I think it's interesting because he wrote that by a cocktail, I mean an aperitif cocktail, one to be taken before a meal. So he, and I don't know if that was common or because he could be a bit of a contrarian. Also, you know, he noted that for him in, you know, just post-war, he was thinking that was something to be drank then. He noted that the dictionary definition at that time in 1940, uh, mid to late 40s, was an ice drink made of spirits bitters flavoring and sugar wow so 1806 and now we're in 1946 hadn't changed a lot <laughs> really
0: i mean it's it's, it's almost a dark foreshadowing though when I hear flavoring there and I'm like yeah. oh, sugar and flavoring and I'm like okay sour mix is coming soon
1: wait wait till at some point we get on here for an hour and talk about how pomegranate was never part of grenadine and grenadine's been artificially flavored red syrup since the 1800s <laughs> <laughs> flavoring's been around
0: <laughs> I do believe really, yeah I've heard some some words on that topic before it is an interesting one but um, Embry it's interesting there that you note know that you know he really goes deep on kind of theory, and yet yeah. this is a this is a gentleman who never professionally worked in the realm. Is that correct? He's a he's a he's a lawyer. He did not, no, he was a,
1: a a lawyer, not always representing the best causes, not always the best person. His daughter was very progressive and one of the first sur- female surgeons in the United States. And an amazing. His family went on to be very progressive and interesting, but he, he wasn't always, um, you know, he was a magician. He wrote a book on magic. Uh, <laughs> he was very detail oriented, but he certainly was not, uh, nor did he claim to be a professional mm-hmm. bartender. Um, he goes with his drink. He has his, <laughs> we're talking about the definition, the original definition of the cocktail is what is it, one line? His is two pages. (laughs) Wow. He goes on to say that it it must wet the appetite, not dull it. And he goes into saying like that means it can't be overly sweet, in his opinion. He liked things really dry. It should stimulate the mind and please the senses, uh, that it must be pleasing to the palate. It must be pleasing to the eye. It must have sufficient alcohol flavor to be readily distinguishable from papaya juice. (laughs) (laughs) And his final thing is it must be well iced. So... I guess that's, I would add a couple of those things to my modern definition. Should be served chilled. Mm -hmm. Because for me, a proper cocktail should be around negative six or negative seven degrees Celsius. One of the least popular things I ever did when I got into this business was I would carry an infrared thermometer around with me. (laughs) (laughs) Was this for for your own bars or just
0: any bar that you behave? No, this is before uh, I owned bars. And then while you're pulling out Embry's notes there and just, you know, tapping, don't make me tap the notes here.
1: Yeah, here, no, not, not, you have to make this one again. It's not quite the right temperature. But I think, I I do think um, his aesthetic, uh, pleasing to the eye, I think is relative. It could be the glassware, it could be the glass, it could be the drink itself, um, and must be well iced. So yeah, I think we missed that part of the definition. I think it should be served, in modern definition, I would add that it should be served chilled.
0: Yeah, I think those are both very fair points there. Um, And and I can already hear maybe naysayers being like, well, what about, you know, like something like a tea punch? And that's got great ceremony to it, but maybe, you know, maybe it's just another way of drinking a fine product. Maybe that's not actually a cocktail. Certainly in my mind, neither hot cocktails. I I, I definitely am with you on
1: that one. For me, it really has to be, you know, ice cold. Interesting. Yeah, me too. I mean, a hot cocktail... Yeah, I don't ever use those words. I wouldn't call something a hot, hot toddy. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's or it's a, something I might drink after dinner, but you know, yeah. like again, I'm pretty much with Embry on this one too. I wouldn't I wouldn't add it to the definition, but for me a cocktail is a pre-dinner thing. If I'm having cocktails after dinner as well, generally the night's going in one direction and it's not a good one. <laughs> Switch over onto wine there, but so I'd love for you to. uh, Are are there any other definitions throughout history or or famous, you know, examples that touch upon this subject that you that you
1: wanted to highlight? Nothing that comes to mind that really, you know, that was notable at the time. None that come to mind immediately.
0: Okay, well, I want to get into this second part that we actually started with, but you know, I'm thinking. You know, I don't know whether you are familiar with uh, Shawshank Redemption, that classic scene of Andy and Red in the yard, and I understand you're a man who knows how to get things. And I think that's a good way to kind of categorize yourself, Greg, uh, and the way you've operated in this business, because not only are we talking about this incredible library, but then high quality Japanese barware and glassware as well in the beginning. Can you tell us about that and Also, the influence it's had, because I think this really has greatly influenced, again, the cocktail movement, just as those books have.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I ended up amassing the largest collection of antique cocktail books in the world, and it became a working research library. Um, And as part of that, a lot of the books would mention antique barware. And I started importing barware at first around uh, 15 years ago, a little more. Uh, and I would bring in Japanese barware and a few pieces of German barware. There were a couple of cocktail strainers from Germany at the time that were well, uh, that were made. Um, originally importing in my suitcase and then <laughs> later importing more officially and uh, doing my research and finding out which things uh, were both aesthetically pleasing and used. And since I wasn't a bartender, I very much would go to the bartenders I respected the most. So I'd go to Jim Meehan and Don Lee at PDT and people of that caliber and Audrey Saunders and ask around, what do you think it is? bring something back from Japan. How does this work? What do you think of that? And a few things happened. I mean, I noticed that some of the historic barware that was wonderful and both functional and aesthetically pleasing wasn't made not in Japan, wasn't made in Germany, wasn't made at all. So I started creating barware based on historical things. And then later we ended up working with a lot of people to develop barware um, also for a modern aesthetic. But to add to the ceremony and making cocktails in a traditional way, having barware that you're seeing in the Hoffman House Bartender's Guide from 1905, for example, the Hoffman House being a, a hotel bar in New York in the golden age of the American cocktail Arguably, it was the most famous bar at the most famous time in New York. So, um, and the book that they, that's published in their name has photographs in it. So, we're actually seeing the barware. And so, we started first distributing barware and then designing and manufacturing our own barware. At this point, Cocktail Kingdom designed and manufactures 100% of uh all the cocktail shakers mixing glasses bar spoons glassware everything that we do but our original nod was to historical Mm -hmm. things and bringing back the history of the cocktail both in the ingredients but not in the ingredients but in how it was made and the barware was made with
0: including um was it not the nick and
1: nora glass the nick and nora isn't one that I was the first. It was uncommon at the time. Oh, okay. So you helped. The coupe coupe itself, there was one other coupe on the market, and it was exceedingly clunky and ugly. And I believe it was pretty much used for like building champagne towers at tacky weddings. (laughs) So the coupe, I would say, was the first one that I brought back, a relatively delicate yet durable enough coupe that it could be used on a Saturday night in a bar, Mm -hmm. but the coupe was what put us in the glassware market because uh, the cocktail kingdom coupe is just uh, at this point, I guess it's kind of common, but it wasn't then when we started this.
0: It's it's so interesting because I was reading something of a different topic the other day, but you know, Jancis Robinson, the luminary and in, in, in wine that she is. And um, she was answering a, a reader question of some somewhere. I forget where this came up about glassware and, you know, how many different wine glasses does one person need? And she said, just one. And I can't remember. I know she has her own glassware. I don't know whether she has a line and she was just... Anyway, <laughs> she said just one. And and one of the things that she mentioned there is that, you know, it should be broad enough in the kind of bowl so you can swirl, but kind of narrow enough towards the top so you can keep the wine inside it and the aromas, you know, stay there. That's fine, whatever. But... The main thing she said that I immediately think of when I think of Cocktail Kingdom glassware is that the glass should be fine so that your lips and your palate feels more connected to the wine, or in this case, the cocktail. And you mentioned those clunky coupe glasses there. And yeah, you can have a brilliantly made martini served in one of those. The glass can be perfectly chilled, but there's there's an impediment there to the, the experience.
1: It's, I, and even, I agree, and also if we're getting back to the definition of the cocktail, I mean, if you're, you know, making your cocktail in a plastic pitcher or Tupperware, and then you're pouring it out of a red Solo cup, does it fit the definition of the cocktail? I guess I'll be technically sure, but it lacks the the experience of what that, Would be, And I think having proper barware, some of the barware we created with Dave Wondrich for me, uh, just really, we have the Lindley pick strainer, (laughs) which is based on, how can I say the first modification of the first patent of a Hawthorne strainer. So the first Hawthorne strainer, the Lindley strainer had no ears, and then it was updated in 1907, they added an ear, so the strainer wasn't being put into the cocktail like a julep strainer, it was staying on the outside of the mixing vessel. And when I use that strainer, it evokes certain things and it's, you know, the experience makes the cocktail taste better. And there's a reason we recreated that strainer. So it's interesting to think part of, even if it wouldn't be in the written definition, part of what a cocktail is, is part of the ceremony we talked about and it being made with proper barware, hopefully in front of you. Other than in maybe, you know, some tiki aspects where you want to come out as a mystery, but mostly classic cocktails made in front of you or by yourself, you know, and making a beautiful cocktail, putting it in a nice glass, it's delicate enough for the drink really does fit, you know, becomes part of what a cocktail is. Mm -hmm.
0: And so for some of that equipment, sorry, were you saying, you know, like, especially the original designs there? would that have been inspired by that library that you had and and just doing work? Like, how readily available were some of those kind of designs for, for barware that had been forgotten as the art became lost over the decades?
1: We had to recreate them, but I, besides the Cocktail Book Library, I have a large collection, almost a mini-museum of antique barware as well. So I have the original Lindley strainer and the patent. It's no longer, the patent's um, expired, but... Yeah, we have the patents for some of those. And other things that we create are based more loosely, like the julep strainer we created is based on old patterns, but we change the curvature to make it a little more functional. Hmm. Uh, We always think about that. Like our cortico shakers when using shaking tins, shaking tins go back a long, long way. In the old days, before there was corrugated boxes and things like that, you would have different size metal containers And at the store, like you would keep your nails in a metal container and you get two of those that nest together, you've got yourself a cocktail shaker (laughs) before things were purposefully made for bartenders. But with us, we marry that together with thoughtful design. So like the Corico shaking tin on the short tin, the top centimeters bent in a specific angle, so it seals better. So if we went back to the historical barware, sometimes it did leak it wasn't perfect <laughs> so you know you could take cues from history but you do sometimes need to update it a little bit the linley pick strainer you know for example i mean we as i said we we actually that one's pretty historically mm-hmm. accurate because it, it just worked as is so if you don't have to change it we don't change it
0: but that evolution you know where where the technology is available and where there becomes an advantage hell yeah like why not do that i i, I love yeah. that idea um I don't think you did mention this. You know, we mentioned Salvatore's book in ninety-eight and the beginning. But would it have been during that trip when you came across your first um antique kind of cocktail book discovery? Am I getting that right? Or around that time? Like what yeah, was that? That's
1: pretty right. So I was going to the library bar, which is in the Lanesboro. Um, and I would actually stay in that hotel because we were publishing his book and I had the association with that place. Um and when I was going back to New York. I was looking for antique cocktail books. And the uh, first one, I got a small little pocketbook at a antiquarian bookstore in London called by a guy named Paul E. Lowe, um, which is just recipes, didn't have a lot of other content. And then the Bartender's Guide and Songbook, which is published during Prohibition in New York, I bought um, at that time. And it's the opposite. It's rather than pocket sized it's kind of oversized and very whimsical, <laughs> silly and so my first couple books were kind of from different uh, ends of the of the spectrum. And though, but,
0: the, you know, incredible, that being what well, I'm going to do some mental arithmetic here 25 years ago this year. Um, <laughs> and just, yeah, you know, I'm here to say it today because you, you, you know, you'll probably be too humble, but, you know, every single week, you know, we're a hundred episodes in here now. We've done a handful of techniques episodes. So 90 cocktails, at least we've covered. And, you know, not an episode goes by when someone doesn't mention an Embry, a Jerry Thomas, um, or, you know, proper barware. But then finally, this idea of evolution that I like that we've kind of settled upon with the definition because they will talk about how Embry had a dry pilot or ingredients have changed and evolved over time. So we have to accept that evolution and work with it. But I'm pretty happy yeah. with that. You know, congratulations on the work you're done, but I'm pretty happy as well with that updated definition you've come up with today.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, evolution is an interesting thing. You think super quickly, I mean, yeah, whether it's barware evolving, and I'm super proud of what Cocktail Kingdom's done, um, but even cocktails themselves evolve. You take uh, El Diablo as a cocktail, it was originally a rum drink created by Ron Rico. And then Trader Vic turned it into the Mexican. Uh, El Diablo because he added tequila instead of rum and Mexican being the qualifier. So the same like the Brandy Alexander, you know, it wasn't originally made with brandy because it would have just been called the Alexander. It was actually made with gin. So the Mexican El Diablo was his indication that he's changed the recipe and now he's making a rum drink with tequila and then things change and the tequila version won. (laughs) And so Mexican got dropped. So now it's oddly called the El Diablo, <laughs> but that's because it used to be the Mexican El Diablo. So you see, and but do, am I happy with that? Sure. I, things evolved and I think that's a wonderful drink. Um, but you can see that same with definitions evolving where cocktails are now. It's less restrictive, it's more of a category. Uh, it's not like a subcategory of alcoholic beverage, it is a large category, but yeah, I'm okay with change. I just like knowing the history and giving a nod to history and understanding that you've accepted this change.
0: And it having those those deep roots there. Yeah, no, I love it. I think, you know, just on that a quick side note there with the whole The El Diablo, trust me, we had the had to figure that one out when we did the episode and we had to agree at the beginning. We're just going to call it El Diablo or The Diablo if you must, because otherwise it just doesn't
1: make sense there. But it's fun. Things like that always bother me when people say ATM machine. I'm like, the M stands for machine. Stop it. Well, that definitely
0: does seem to track with a man who may or may not have walked around with an infrared thermometer uh, visiting (laughs) bars. All right, Greg, let's do it. Let's head into the final section of the show today and end up, as always, with our five recurring questions. And I'm going to hit you in number one here. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar?
1: Well, I think I have the largest collection of mezcal in the world outside of Mexico. So both at my bar, The Cabinet in New York, um, and my personal collection, between the two, I have about a thousand four hundred different Mezcals. So I think that's a pretty clear winner. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: having just come back from Oaxaca, I was going to be like, any any preference on you know species or
1: whatnot? But the answer is always it depends, right? It does, but yeah. I mean, I always like uh, cerudo. Often rises to the top for me as one of my favorite agaves. But yeah, it depends where and how it's made. Mm-hmm. But, mezcal is definitely my biggest passion in terms of spirits
0: and and when when did that journey
1: begin? um oh, probably in earnest in earnest about seven years ago or so a guy named Justin Lane Briggs showed me around Oaxaca and then that and now I have the cabinet so I have a home for all my bottles <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: honestly that's how you how, that's how they get you. you you got your head out to Oaxaca once and then suddenly you find yourself muling back two liter bottles of uh, Atokain, you know, God knows what. It's yeah, absolutely. fantastic. <laughs> um, all right, question number two: Which ingredient or tool? Good one for you here. Do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal?
1: Um, I still think to the day I'm going to stick with the jigger. I do think that not just even have jiggers and don't use them correctly, but I'm a big believer in some of my favorite bar experiences are when the drink tastes the same when I'm there on different times. Of course, your citrus can change. Things can change. They're variables. But I think the inaccurate jigger, the Leopold jigger, is, Leopold is my great-grandfather, so I named it after him. Um, so both the design and I still think it's a little underutilized, uh, although they're common now, but still could be even <laughs> use more and maybe even use better, I would say.
0: Nice. Why, you know, captive audience over here (laughs) and among the listeners too, you know, so I'm sure you get a a lot of people Googling that now and just interested (laughs) on that one. Question number three, what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry?
1: Um, I think over the years when people have mentioned to not be too proud and the way I've taken that is to take advice from others, especially so I have uh, four bars right now. So the cabinet, Katana Kitten, uh, Mace and Super Bueno and things work and things don't work, but not being too proud if I had an idea and I think it's working, I think it would work and to take the advice from others and to really step back and listen to others and not just be Bullheaded about my idea was how it has to be.
0: I think that's great advice there. You know, good to take that from others. And some some fantastic spaces that you mentioned there. You mentioned earlier actually the vodka soda is not a cocktail, but it can be if you're making a vodka soda.
1: I was wondering if you're going to mention. <laughs> 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 I thought it as I said it. Yeah, super Buenos vodka y soda is certainly certainly a uh, cocktail drink of the moment.
0: Yes, phenomenal All right, Greg. Penultimate question today. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be?
1: Um, I would go back to 10 years ago to Floridita in Havana. I was there with Dave Wondrich at a time when Cuba wasn't really open. And we were there later in the evening when the tour buses had left. And um, I really felt the history of the cocktail. I mean, being with Dave Wundrich is always a good time, but just being in that bar, Floridita, evoked all the emotions as to why I've been in this industry uh, and all the things I want to do. The entertainment, there was some live music, but you could still have a conversation in just the, the aesthetics of the place. I think that's, that's the thing that I'm chasing. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I'd be chasing again.
0: Fantastic. All right, then final question for you today and final question within this century of the episodes here at Cocktail College. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make?
1: Uh, I would definitely say a Tommy's Margarita. Um, I'm crazy about agave already and it was the first drink that I remember enter- making when I was entertaining in my um you know on my own, and it's again modern classics which have an affinity for simple which have an affinity for uh just made with the it's that right balance of flavorful yet refreshing um we are also it is summer now, so that affects probably <laughs> what I'm thinking I'd want to drink but the tommy's margarita is definitely a drink that has made me happy many times
0: arguably could be one of those ones where in 50 years time we see that the tommies just drops from the name because i think it is a superior it's it's my preferred way to drink a margarita at least i'm just going to put that one out there and say we could get a little diablo situation going on um Is that have you done much um, vintage tequila tasting? This is this is a bonus question here. You know, was that originally made with chinaco or heredura? I'm I'm struggling to think, but
1: we'll have to ask Julio. I would have have thought heredura, but I am not. Yeah, we'll have to ask. luckily, we can ask the source. (laughs) We can.
0: Yeah, that's the that's the quality there. No, I mean just in terms of some some vintage vintage tequila where you might be able to try something that was bottled above 40% ABV and probably wasn't 100% Blue Weber, but was 100% actual agave. Uh, You know, some of those old bottlings, I I hear pretty good things about those. So
1: I'm going to be doing a vintage tequila event at the cabinet because I have a large collection of vintage uh, tequila as well. So I don't, I wasn't thinking i'd make a tommy's but i guess i could make one or two tommy's using some of the old stuff
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i say you gotta you gotta go for i don't know maybe something a little bit more spirit forward there but well i will need to and, and when would that when is that event just uh in case that's still timely here
1: we haven't scheduled yet but i think it's probably going to be january of 2024 oh fantastic uh, then the the cabinet at the mezcal bar becomes miracle on 9th street in november and december
0: <laughs> that i that i completely forgot about you it's about to be your busy season right here and and look i actually greg we got to get you back for another episode on that because i think you know one of the most influential bars in the world or bar concepts in the world you know um, in in certainly in living times here or the past couple of decades, phenomenal success with that and a fun time of year for you, I'm sure. Pretty quiet.
1: Yeah, only a hundred. I think we've just passed 194 locations between um, Miracle and Sipping Santa concepts around the world. <laughs> Greg,
0: a true innovator, uh, a historian. We appreciate your time here today on Cocktail College. Thank you so much and look forward to having you
1: back someday soon. Thanks, congratulations on your 100th episode. (laughs) Cheers.
0: Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show, anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts whether that's apple spotify or stitcher and please tell your friends now for the credits cocktail college is recorded in new york city and produced by myself and darby seaside who also composed our awesome theme music just give that a listen folks I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin, editor-in-chief Joanna Chirino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose.
1: Until next time.